Good morning, and welcome everyone to Live Dharma Sunday for December 11th, 2016. Koyo Kubose here. So very, very glad you joined us. Well, a few days ago, in on December 8th, was Bodhi Day or Enlightenment Day, celebrated in the Mahayana calendar, uh, early December. And many temples um, in Japan, in the Zen tradition, they observe a special intensive meditation period, long, culminating on the last day on December the 8th. And it's called Rohatsu Seshin. Um, Rohatsu I'm not, I can't remember what the exact meaning of that is. Session, of course, is the intensive sitting period or retreat-like. And uh, uh, when I was in Kyoto, Japan in the 70s, uh, I, uh, I sat uh, several Rohatsu sessions at the Rokoin Temple the Osho-sama, where the, the head priest there, uh, Kobori Roshi, Kobori-sensei, uh, he had been to America for a while, and he his English was pretty good, and he uh, welcomed foreigners to, to sit uh, at his family temple. It wasn't a uh, monastery per se you know there was um, this temple was part of the Daitokuji com- compound and many uh, 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 there are I think three different kinds of uh, Zen temples one is a more tourist Rokoi uh, Rokoi um, uh, one that has the famous garden or some temples that, you know, they're primarily geared for tourists, although they may have their own small monastery with the monks. Then there are regular training monasteries, and maybe uh, uh, Daitokuji is one of the headquarters for uh, Rinzai Zen. AAG is the headquarters for Soto Zen. And they may have uh, training monasteries for resident monks. Then the third type is uh, smaller family-owned temples, um, a particular family owns the property and carries on their own traditions. And uh, so Rokoin, uh, Dragon Light, is the translation of Rokoin, which was Kobori-sensei's family temple. And it was kind of unique in Kyoto because he opened it up to foreigners, English-speaking, since he, he, he could speak English. So a small group of us uh, foreigners were always there, sometimes rotating around over the years. But maybe, uh, you know, a dozen or so. And uh, on one, what I wanted to share... This morning was 
it was after one Rohatsusishin when they gathered in the towards just wind down and uh, and Kobori Sensei uh, kind of wraps it up with a little Teisho or a little Zen talk, Dharma talk. Now, on this particular occasion, he commented about his experience when he was in training and with his teacher. And uh, uh, he said his teacher often told a particular uh, related his experience of Aloha Tsushin that he experienced. And Koboi uh, Sensei's his teacher, uh, of course, this is an intensive training period and you're really motivated. And his teacher, when he, when he was in training, uh, decided he wanted to really uh, endeavor. And there was a, a small lake near the temple, and so he decided he, he was going to go sit in the water in the lake overnight. And, uh, and so he got a wooden barrel that he could fit inside of, and he sunk it into the shallow water of the, the still lake, and he sat inside the barrel, and just his head was above the water. And this is December, so it's winter time, and uh, <clears throat> water's cold. Uh, but he sat there overnight. And he often told this story to his monks at Lohatsu Session time. So the story that Kobori Sensei says is, is that one time when he was in training and uh, um, there was another fellow monk who said, I'm going to do what? Sensei always tells that story about he sat and meditated in the water. And uh, there was a, uh, this is in the mountains, different temple. Uh, and there was a, a stream, mountain stream close by. And so this monk said, I'm going to sit in that in there overnight. And I want you to be my witness. And Kobori Sensei said, well, he, he was assigned to kitchen duty and stuff, so he said, no, I, 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 I have my my duties. And so anyway, this monk went into the river and the upshot is uh, he caught a terrible cold and he got sick, and he missed the whole session. Kobori Sensei says, the, the moral of that story is, you shouldn't copy or imitate others. Plus, he, he explains, you, that monk wasn't too smart, because the 
your sensei, when he went into a still lake, he went inside a barrel. Uh, where this other monk went to a river, into a stream, correct? <laughs> you know, moving water like that, and uh, also, Koboi Sensei said that his sensei that went in, that sat in the lake when he was ever when he told the story when he he was asked, well, what did you experience? What you know, any experiences? And the sensei would say, well, you know, when ice, a thin layer of ice freezes, the water freezes, you form a thin layer of ice on the surface of the water. Then it expands and it cracks. And when it, as it cracks, it makes a a particular sound, crackling sound. And that was his only answer. So I thought that was always a very interesting story to ponder and think about. And uh, so whenever it's Aloha Succession time, I have those memories. Um, Well, I want to introduce today's guest to give us a Dharma glimpse, uh, Morris Secchio, uh, lives in Florida. He was part of our LM3 uh, lay minister group that went through and they received a induction ceremony here at Bright Down in 2010. And uh, Morris Secchio uh, has a uh, uh, a group in Central Florida uh, it takes care of and also has a prison Dharma group nearby prison and uh, he's doing very good work locally in Florida and uh, he has done T. Serana Buddhist confirmation ceremonies uh, for students there and some of them have come on to to um, through his word of mouth to the our bright dawn um, lay ministry study program, and um, so that's that's the best way in which we which the word of mouth to propagate, and um, there's nothing like that where they could you could really see uh, what kind of get an idea what kind of experience it is, and uh, so many. Students have come from Florida, and when we look at for the United States, little red pins, pins, where our bright down lay ministers reside, quite a few in Florida, and part of it's due to we wish to say, gee, there must be some kind of a Dharma water, something in the water in Florida, because we get a lot of students from Florida. But let's hear from Morris Secchiotti. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for inviting me to be here today. Early this week, the Japanese Prime Minister announced that he would visit Pearl Harbor in a few weeks to meet with President Obama. 
And this reciprocates a visit the president made this spring when he became the first American president to visit the site where the U.S. dropped the first atomic bomb on Japan during the Second World War. This reminded me of a visit that I made to that site myself about 30 years ago. During a tour of Japan, I stayed at a hotel right next to the Peace Memorial Park in Hiroshima. And so one of the most moving things that I saw there at the park was a children's monument, which was created to honor Sadako Sasaki, a young girl who died from leukemia several years after the bombing. Sadako had heard that if you fold a thousand origami cranes, you will get a wish. So she set out to fold a thousand cranes. Even when it became clear that she was going to die from cancer caused by the radiation, she kept on folding cranes. She changed her wish, though. She wished for peace so other children wouldn't have to suffer the way she was suffering. There's a statue over there, a young girl holding an origami crane. It was surrounded by paper cranes that had been brought or sent there by people who were inspired by her message of peace. Thinking about these world leaders visiting these sites where these terrible tragedies took place, I remembered Sadako and I thought about why her story is so inspiring. Of course, it's a sad one. An innocent child, despite being a good student and a generally good person, died as a result of a war that she had nothing to do with. But there's another message, too. A human being dealing with unfair conditions, experiencing a hopeless personal tragedy, enduring remarkable physical pain, sets her mind on a purpose and moves inexorably toward it despite its apparent impossibility. We all have to deal with irresistible forces in our lives one way or another. Usually those forces aren't anything like the scale of an atomic bomb or a terminal disease. They're more likely to result from spending time during the holidays with difficult family members or from changes in government, economic conditions, and things like that. But the winds of change touch us all, and the best refuge from the storms of life is to practice with body, speech, and mind in ways that will prepare us for whatever those winds blow our way. If we are to remain on firm footing in the face of these winds and respond to them skillfully, we'll need the ability to let feelings happen as they will and to keep steering our actions back toward our higher purpose. That doesn't mean we need to be unemotional. Some people have the impression that if you start practicing Buddhism, you're going to be serene and detached all the time. I get a lot of people come to our meetings in land wanting to learn how to meditate, and sometimes I'll ask what they hope to accomplish with that. A lot of times they'll answer, well, I want to have inner peace. Inner peace is pleasant, but it's not really all that useful. Unpleasant emotions are a side effect of being a caring human being. If we're faced with a loss of freedom or with rampant injustice, we don't really want to be okay with that. Sensei Michelle Joyo and I said our last goodbyes to our dog Faust this week. I've had some really good dogs, but Faust was very special. He and I were really close, and I miss him a lot. You know when you get a dog that you're going to have to say goodbye to them one day. That doesn't make it any easier. I keep thinking of that famous Japanese poem, This dewdrop world is a dewdrop world. And yet, and yet. Those and yets can be really rough, but they're a necessary part of the joys in life. So rather than wanting to feel good all the time, we can accept what happens. We can respond to it authentically and then move forward like Sadako did, motivated by our most important, our highest purpose. 
Sadaka's initial purpose, as I said, was to get her wish to have her cancer be cured. But when she saw the effect her actions were having on others, her purpose broadened. She wasn't deterred by the impossibility of her task. Instead, she changed her wish to one to benefit others. Her purpose was an immense, impossible one to save all children from dying in war. But from moment to moment, that purpose took shape in a tiny, focused task to fold just one crane. There's a quote from her at the base of the memorial that I think reflects what she had in mind as she folded her origami birds. I will write peace on your wings and you will fly all over the world. Well, thank you for listening and I hope that you have a pleasant Sunday whatever the winds of change blow your way. Thank you very much. That's right, you know. Um, I was talking to... Uh, Adrian goes to a Tai Chi class every Wednesday at the uh, Fresno Betsuing Dharma Center. Um, our sister-in-law Joyce is the teacher and it's, it's a really nice group um, uh, maybe all oh, 30, 40 uh, people most of them ladies um, and every Wednesday but they have certain events too and in December, before they break for the take a break for the holidays, after Wednesday morning uh, Tai Chi class, they have their annual uh, lunch, and they go out to a restaurant and they go into the banquet room, and uh, so we went to a Japanese buffet, uh, Mitsui, uh, and. Uh, had a nice lunch, and they have, a, you know, it's a big facility, and you go and it's all you could eat, and all kinds of uh, food available, buffet style. And most of these places have a, a nice a banquet room where groups could could uh, could sit and gather and socialize, they eat together. So we were doing that last Wednesday, and I was sitting. Uh, and talking to some ladies and and last Wednesday was December seventh. Uh, Pearl Harbor Day. So I happened to mention that, you know, you know it's the seventy fifth anniversary. And uh newspapers will carry stories about local uh, organizations and uh, that are preserving it, or are there some still survivors? Uh, living and so forth. Uh, so I was mentioning, you know, it's not, so time has gone by, but I remember saying in the, in the 50s and 60s, when it was, you know, some decades ago, but when it was closer to after it happened, Japanese Americans uh, uh, 
were a little careful going out in public on on that day, you know. <laughs> and uh, so we were just kind of talking about that a little bit. Uh, first time for Prime Minister of Japan visiting Pearl Harbor uh, on December 7th. Days ago, and it was kind of a reciprocation for President Obama's visiting the Hiroshima Peace Park, where the atom bomb was dropped in August of '45. Uh, you know, these events. We think about war. And uh, well, I guess what we might call human experiences and uh, I think it's uh, a really uh, important insight where more secular talked about uh, the stereotype of Buddhist um, the Buddhist ideal, someone in meditation and or that uh, enlightenment means to be serene, inner peace and calm and quiet and kind of passive. Um, and that if we look at the Buddha's historical Gautama Buddha's life and the life of many spiritual leaders in different traditions, uh, their their impact in their time in history, time and place, they were revolutionaries. They did, they impacted society. They may have had a maybe a kind of a they maybe had a calm exterior, but they were very passionate. Uh, the means is compassion too. Two sides of a coin. Like, okay. what good is wisdom if it's if it's really true wisdom? That means that you're living. Living wisdom. It's not head head knowledge only. Huh? So uh, this is a very good point uh, in terms of the the passion that uh, an engaged Buddhism you might call it. Uh, and it's not an escape from the world. Even though some of the major teachings of interdependency, impermanence, and so forth, if you're, you know, uh, teachings occur in people's lives, human beings' lives. They're not dry, abstract teachings that are divorced from living beings. Um, and so living beings means 
there's difficulties in life. And that classic story of the world of do is the world of do. And yet, and yet, a famous poem uh, by a Buddhist monk who lost the infant daughter. Being a monk, he knows about the, the teaching of and the reality of impermanence. Nobody lives forever. Huh? Um, when it's your, when it hits close to home, loved one is gone. And particularly, the worst thing for is a child going before a parent goes. So, and yet, and yet, a world of do, meaning, you know, there's do in the morning, but a few hours later, it just evaporates. Such change, constant change. Uh, but we can't help but have very deep feelings when those changes are the kind of changes that are, you know, loss of a loved one. And so, in general, whether we're talking about the ravages of war, what's happening in Aleppo and uh, we may have goals of world peace. And I'm not saying that, you know, we shouldn't have those goals and ideals, but at the same time, the presence of war in history and so forth shouldn't make us cynical. So oh, that's just, the, you know, human nature and survival of the fittest or whatever rationalizations we might have for the ideologies that lead to war. But from the spiritual religious context, uh, how to deal with these things, how to, you know, um, accept their, their reality no matter what happens and to still go forward. That's a tremendous challenge. And that that's what was at the heart of when Siddhartha left the palace. Huh? How can we live knowing that we and our loved ones and everyone are going to get old, are going to get sick, are going to pass away? Huh? How are we supposed to deal with this? Isn't this a matter of supreme ultimate importance and of course religions have arisen to meet this spiritual need and they offer different paths or different approaches and Buddhism has its particular approach so it's particularly at this time of December, Bodhi Day, Enlightenment Day. Uh, where, and I think it's kind of nice that it's in winter. Winter is darkest time. <laughs> Hibernation, sort of. You know, 
ugly in nature, too. Huh? All the leaves, deciduous trees lose its leaves and goes dormant. Uh, time of renewal, time to go back to get the strengthen the roots. What are our roots? What, you know, and uh, winds of change are always blowing, and in the winter time is cold wind. Maybe uh, I think seasonally we should think about. How do we live when we know that there's these cycles? And it's not just warm springtime, just one season all year round. Okay? Even if you say, oh, maybe there's Hawaii. <laughs> but yeah, every place has seasons, you know. Um, I remember when we, well, I don't want to go off tangent too much, but I remember when we first, when, we lived in Hawaii for, uh, I taught at the University of Hawaii in a visiting position for one semester. It was, it was from September to, to January, that term. And we rented a house, and, and of course, in September, right end of summer, we were going to the beach. And then we were still, you know, uh, it was still in the low 80s during the winter time. We went going to the beach, and our neighbor, who was a local person, said, Oh, we don't go to the beach in the wintertime. It's too cold. Because, oh, yeah, you, you guys are new. Yeah, people, new, new residents, yeah, they do that for a while right after they come. They, you know, they, they go swimming. But locals, no, no, we don't go swimming in the wintertime. Too cold. We have to appreciate those kinds of winds of change, too. And it stands for, or we could use it as a metaphor perhaps for the winds of change that we've talked about in our Dharma Glimpse about human affairs and all the way down to individual lives. That's all for today's broadcast. Till next time, keep and you have a wonderful day. Thank you.